Novartis, committed to making innovative medicines for a world of patients and their families. Online at Novartis.com. Novartis, think what's possible. Welcome to Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American Magazine for the seven days starting April 12th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, the conclusion of our conversation with anthropologist Carl von Scheich on animal intelligence. Then we'll have an interview that Scientific American senior writer Wade Gibbs recently did with astronomer Steve Squires about the two Mars rovers. And cardiologist Arthur Klatsky discusses a new study about the relationship between alcohol and healthy hearts. Plus, test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Carl von Scheich, the director of the Anthropological Institute and Museum at the University of Zurich. Last week, he talked about his article in the April issue of Scientific American magazine called Why Are Some Animals So Smart? This week, he speculates about whether some apes could be even smarter than they get a chance to be. He spoke from his office in Switzerland. You talk about, toward the, toward the end of the article, about the idea that the other great apes, for example, gorillas and chimpanzees, probably have the potential for being much smarter than their current environment requires them to be. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting notion. So you think that, and you do see this, according to the article, when a great ape is adopted in a human family and, right. has, and is required to do more human things, clearly the potential for that intelligence was there. Yeah. So, so the idea is, of course, that um, inputs... Uh, put it like this, you're not born intelligent. You're made intelligent because of inputs. There has to be something there, some infrastructure. But if you don't fill it, if you don't develop it, and as you know, the brain is extremely plastic, and that's also true for primate brains. So you, you need to, to have these inputs. Social inputs enhance the signal-to-noise ratio. But of course, it really depends on what those social inputs are. Uh, grade ape inputs are not human inputs. So you might call it the bootstrapping problem in the sense that if you could somehow, and that's what we do experimentally, um, increase the efficiency of those inputs, show these animals things that they would not normally see in the wild, then, of course, it turns out that with that same equipment, if you, if you, if you uh, prime it properly, so to speak, uh, you can actually reach much higher levels of cognitive performance, and that's in the end. You know, the, the expressed, realized intelligence is in the end what natural selection sees. The fact that they still have these big brains in the wild and they do relatively, for us, uh, not so intelligent things with it is simply because of the nature of the inputs. They can't make those inputs any better than they are. If you can, then you, you can achieve much greater intellectual performance with the same brain. And, of course, we are also talking about various species here who already have the potential for pretty high intelligence. You cannot teach a cat to interact the same way as you can teach a great ape to interact. Absolutely. And but and the other thing that it actually shows you is that if if you would compare say uh an orangutan or a chimpanzee in the wild with a human hunter gatherer, you would see massive differences. And yet you could now that we do these kinds of experiments, you could see that the differences are actually not as big because with a great ape brain, if properly uh, receiving proper inputs developmentally, you can actually achieve levels that are not as far removed as the human level. And so you could see how evolution had a, an easier time crossing that gap than you might, you know, at least uh, than we, we would have uh, assumed before we knew this. 
you get to spend a lot of time observing these animals in the wild. Mm-hmm. How much fun is that? <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, I realize it's also hard work, but... Well, first of all, it's very hard work. And some of the time, and as I said in the book, uh, watching orangutans feed is like, or, or, or go around their daily business is like watching paint dry, because, you know, they just sit there and munch. <laughs> and it's not like... Uh, you know, what you see in the documentaries is, of course, hundreds of hours of observation distilled into 30 seconds of excitement. Right. But it's, it's still, it's nice to have a job where you can work outside. Absolutely. And, and I, I tell you, it's never really boring because they always, every day they do something exciting that you've never seen before and it makes you think and you really have to, I mean, you, you find these things and it, you have plenty of time to chew on them and, and really think them through. You mentioned the book. That's uh, You have a book out in addition to the article in the April issue of Scientific American. What's the name of the book? The book is called Among Orangutans, uh, Red Apes and the Rise of Human Culture. And I wanted to ask you one other thing, and this is uh, probably a naive question. It's very different watching an orangutan from watching a uh, a chimp or a gorilla. Right. You You definitely get the impression with all three species that somebody is in there. Right, right. But with an orangutan, it's, you get the, you get a, the impression that somebody very individual and, and you just get this feeling of intelligence and presence. Right. And, and my question is, after all that, how much am I anthropomorphizing that because of the orangutan's more placid appearance? Right. And how much do you think that's real? Well, first of all, there's nothing wrong with this kind of anthropomorphizing if it puts you onto hypotheses and testing things, right? So mm-hmm. this is great. What orangutans have to do more than chimps and gorillas is enjoy themselves on their own because they are less gregarious, they're less social than other species. What we find, of course, is that there's variation in the field, uh, in the wild, uh, different sites, you know, they're much more gregarious than others. But by and large, they have to somehow amuse themselves more. And that sort of maybe gave you that impression. If you now do formal cognition tests, then again, now we have to really take that developmental factor into account, so it's much harder to compare existing material. But if you do compare existing material, you sort of ignore the developmental component, then it really is... Uh, chimps and orangutans come out very, very similar. So the the idea that orangutans are somehow more philosophical, you know, more deeper thinkers, exactly. you, know, you think of Rodin's <laughs> statue there, that isn't probably not quite right. That's probably an assumption based on their contemplative appearance. Exactly, yeah. It's fascinating. Dr. Van Schaik, thanks very much for talking to us. Sure. Carl Van Schaik's article, Why Are Some Animals So Smart?, is in the April issue of Scientific American Magazine, and it's available free at our website, www.siam.com. Want to share some thoughts about the podcast? Let us know what you think by participating in our survey at www.siam.com slash research. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one. A paper came out last week showing that 9,000 years ago, people were doing sophisticated dentistry that included drilling fine holes in teeth. 
Story 2, archivists working on the personal papers of President Theodore Roosevelt found out that he applied for a patent for a special vented wooden rack for drying rubber boots and was rejected. Story 3, researchers report that the bacterium Colobacter crescentis produces nature's strongest known glue, about four times stronger than commercial superglue. And story four, a Canadian researcher who wanted to study whether the so-called intelligent design movement in the U.S. might be affecting acceptance of evolution in Canada was denied funding because a Canadian federal agency wasn't sure there was enough evidence for evolution in the first place. We'll be back with the answer, but first... Cornell University astronomer Stephen Squires is the principal investigator for the Mars Rover's science instruments. The Rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, are way past warranty. They landed in January of 2004 and were expected to work for a few months, but were still ticking when Scientific American senior writer Wade Gibbs caught up with Squires a few weeks ago. Here are portions of that interview, which took place in a relatively quiet corner of the press room at a conference in San Jose, California. You mentioned that one of the rovers is now at this formation called Home Plate. Yeah. Uh, what do you hope to learn? What it is, how it formed. It's a plateau. It's a raised plateau about two meters high, about 80 or 90 meters across. From orbit and from the summit of Husband Hill, it's notably light-toned. I mean, it's got a higher albedo. It's brighter than everything around it. Um, and then when you get up to it, what you find is that it's very finely, very intricately layered. Um, the layering... Changes as you go up section, meaning at the bottom there's a stack of layers two meters high, and at the bottom uh, the grains are largely sort of coarse, you know, a few millimeters in size, just kind of rounded, coarse grains. Uh, then as you go upwards, you grain it grades into much finer grain stuff, so sand grains effectively. Um, the upper portion in particular does show some what's called cross bedding, where you have beds that kind of lie at an angle to one another. There are a number of different ways in which that kind of cross-bedding can be made, and so it's not necessarily diagnostic of the formation process. Um, right now, we've got a number of uh, open hypotheses for how the stuff might have formed. Um, you can make layered rock like that by depositing things in water. You can make it by depositing things in air, uh, so wind blowing things around. And you certainly can make it as a result of something like a volcanic explosion, an ash flow sort of deposit. To, to differentiate among these different hypotheses, we need to take more observations of, you know, in detail, you know, microscopic images to show us the grain size, how rounded are they, how well sorted are they, um, get in detail what the rocks are made of. This is all information that we're in the process of gathering now. Uh, so we're, it's kind of an ongoing investigation. And right now we're trying to keep our minds open and just gather the data. It, is it the kind of thing where you expect to learn something just about this rock, or you actually hope to learn something about Mars in general? That you well, already know? I mean, everything to, everything that you learn on Mars tells you something about Mars. It's, it's The question is how broadly or globally can you extend the knowledge that you gain, and that depends on the nature of it. Um, a lot of us suspect that this might be some kind of explosive volcanic material. What would happen if, say, you had lava that was being erupted or injected and it came into contact with a subsurface body of water? Okay, and all of a sudden that stuff flashes into steam, kaboom, you know, and then it settles out. So we might be dealing with something like that. This is this is an unfolding mystery that's changing day to day right now. The other rover is on its way, you said, to Victoria Crater, yeah. a very large and very promising looking. Yeah. 
destination. If things go well, when would you expect to arrive there? Oh, man, I don't. I, I have absolutely no idea. Um, the reason I can't project that is because we don't know anything really about the terrain that we'll be driving through. It's Mars. I mean, I have no idea what we're going to find. You got that big break when the wind gusts cleared the sand yeah. off of the solar panel. Yeah, we've actually panel. had several events like that on both vehicles. Is it your guess that that will be a recurring event that, that will greatly extend the lives of um, these almost indefinitely? Hard to say. The on opportunity, we have seen these. We have seen a series of small clear, clearing events, cleaning events, take place over almost the whole mission. So the, you know, little bits of wind. Opportunity, I don't think, I mean, knock wood, but I think it's very likely that opportunity will not die as a result of dust on the solar panels. Uh, opportunity is very close to the equator, so there's lots of solar power. Opportunity, we seem to get these little cleaning events every so often, and so I think opportunity could last quite a long time. Spirit's a different story. It's different for two reasons. One is that spirit is at a higher latitude. It's at 16 degrees south latitude, and so what that means is, the, is that the winters are much more severe for spirit than they are for opportunity. And the other is that Spirit, we're in the mountains. We're in this this very complex mountainous topography. And when you're up on a ridge crest, when you're up on a summit, which is where all of our cleaning events took place, was on ridge crests and summits, um, then you're exposed to the wind and you can get cleaned off. Right now we're down in a valley. I mean, we're down in a valley for a good reason. We went there because that's where home plate is, and home plate is probably the most interesting thing we found since we landed. But um, we're kind of sheltered from the wind where we are right now. So... Spirit, it's getting tough. What we're going to try to do with Spirit to survive this coming Martian winter is the very same thing that we did last Martian winter. If you looked carefully at that route that we took when we went up Husband Hill, we didn't do a straight shot. We didn't go right up the ridge. Instead, we drove around on the north face. And what that did is, you know, we're in the southern hemisphere. You drive on a north-facing slope, it tilts your solar arrays towards the sun. And we get about 15 or 20 degrees of tilt that way, and that gave us a lot more electrical power to, to survive the winter. I think we would have just had to hibernate all winter long if we hadn't had that slope. So is, um, It is designed to have sort of a hibernation mode? where it no, can, no, no. It's something we'd have to sort of invent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we'd have to just figure out how to do it. But what we're trying to do right now once we wrap up home plate, and we don't have much time at home plate. We've only got a few weeks there. We're going to try to sprint off to the south and find a hill that will face the arrays towards the north again, where it will be a place to serve a safe winter haven where we can try to spend another Martian winter. Now, in the days since that interview, one of the six wheels on Spirit stopped working, but the engineers back here on Earth have been working on that problem, and I got email on April 10th from Squires that read, We've spent the last several weeks learning to drive with five wheels, and we're finally getting the hang of it, and as of today, again, that's April 10th, Spirit has now reached what looks like a safe winter haven on a feature called Low Ridge. In our current location, we are tilted 11.5 degrees toward the north, which has substantially increased the power output from the solar arrays. So we're feeling pretty good about this. That was Squires on April 10th. You can follow the slow motion drama at the Mars Rovers website. Just go to www.jpl.nasa.gov. JPL for Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And once you're there, hit the link for the rovers. We'll be right back. Novartis, committed to making innovative medicines for a world of patients and their families. Online at Novartis.com. Novartis, think what's possible. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, 9,000-year-old dentistry. 
Story two, Teddy Roosevelt was denied a patent. Story three, a bacterium produces the strongest known glue. And story four, a Canadian federal agency denied funding a study of attitudes about evolution because they weren't sure about evolution. Time's up. Story one, the ancient dentistry story is true. The April 6th issue of the journal Nature published the discovery of literally flintstone dentistry. Rotating flint points were probably the drills. The journal article describes 11 drilled molar crowns discovered in a Neolithic graveyard in Pakistan that dates from 7,500 to 9,000 years ago. Drilling could have been aesthetic, if not anesthetic. Ouch. You can read Kate Wong's coverage at blog.siam.com. And story three is true. Scientists writing in the April 11th issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences report that Colobacter crescentis produces the strongest glue known. The glue works on wet surfaces, so there's hope that it could be developed into a surgical adhesive. Story four about the Canadian evolution snafu is true. Brian Alters is the director of McGill University's Evolution Education Research Center, and he wanted to study whether the intelligent design campaign in the U.S. is affecting attitudes in Canada. But the federal funding agency called the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council denied his grant, saying Alters had not supplied quote. Adequate justification for the assumption in his proposal that the theory of evolution and not intelligent design theory was correct. Alder said it was ironic proof that intelligent design may indeed be making inroads north of the border. Intelligent design, helping to put the duh in Canada. Oh,、uh, and before you start typing your your upset email about what I just said. Uh, you have to promise to read all 139 pages of Judge John Jones's decision in the Dover case. All of which means that the story about Teddy Roosevelt and his patent application for a wooden rack to dry rubber shoes is totally bogus. Also bogus are reports of any Dutch researcher's creation of a rubber rack for drying wooden shoes. Next up, Arthur Klatsky. He's a cardiologist at the Kaiser Permanente Medical Center in Oakland, California, and for three decades he's been the leading researcher studying the effect of alcohol consumption on the cardiovascular system. And I was the editor of his February 2003 Scientific American article called "Drink to Your Health." A new study came out last week, what's called a meta-study, that looked at dozens of previous studies. Now, most of these older studies said that light to moderate drinkers were in better cardiovascular shape than people who didn't drink at all. But this new study said that the older studies had made a big mistake. They had included former drinkers, some of whom might be in pretty bad shape, with the non-drinkers. So the new study said that light drinkers got no benefit over non-drinkers. I wanted to get Klatsky's take on all this, so I called him at his home in Orinda, California. Dr. Klatsky, thanks for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Steve, and to hear from you again. You're, you've been in the news a little bit. There's this new study that was in the online journal Addiction Research and Theory. They say in this new study that the belief previously from studies, such as many of yours, that moderate alcohol consumption actually meant that you had a lower risk of cardiovascular disease than abstainers. They say that that's not true, and abstainers. And moderate drinkers have the same risk. So, what's going on with that whole business? Well, Steve, it's a little bit complicated, but let me make a couple of background points. In the first place, it is well known 
that we don't have any experiments in this area. We're dealing only with what are called observational studies, where people's habits are recorded and then the things that happen to those people over the following number of years are noted and relationships are observed. And in these studies, it's customary to control for things that might give an indirect result. The most important, for example, is cigarette smoking. Point number two is that this particular meta-analysis dealt with total mortality and with coronary heart disease mortality. Now, coronary heart disease, of course, the commonest kind of heart disease, as you know, is the condition for which light to moderate drinking seems to be the most beneficial. And the lower mortality of light to moderate drinkers in a large number of studies, many dozens of studies, is due primarily to lower death rate from coronary heart disease, which causes heart attacks and sometimes causes sudden death without any preceding warning. Mm -hmm. Now, the evidence that light to moderate drinking reduces the risk of coronary heart disease, both fatal and non-fatal, is very strong. Not only are there a lot of good, well-performed observational studies that show that, but there's a lot of good, plausible biological evidence for mechanisms by which alcohol might prevent coronary heart disease. Okay, that's the background. The largest problem in my mind with their analysis is, curiously, because they talked about misclassification errors, that they seriously misclassified a lot of the studies. Now, I can't speak about all of the ones that they looked at, but I know that they misclassified our Kaiser Permanente studies because we have been working with a data set that clearly separates past drinkers and the less than one per month drinkers from lifelong abstainers. And we have published two or three studies that clearly show that these group with with these groups separated that light to moderate drinkers have lower coronary mortality or total mortality or both. And how so many of your studies? Studies from the point of view of not including some of the studies that should have been included as free of the errors. That's one problem. Okay, so they did not include studies that really should have been included in the meta analysis. Exactly. On the other hand, some of the studies that they included as free of errors should not have been included at all, studies of young men. One of them was of young African-American men in an urban setting. And it's well known that there's not likely to be any evidence relevant to cardiovascular mortality in men in their 20s and 30s. And I don't think that their analysis really seriously undermines the large body of evidence strongly suggests on the basis of observational data only. I want to point out that we don't have the holy grail. We don't have the randomized controlled trial. However, they, they, their claim is that even those observational reports are flawed, and I don't think that they have proved that in this uh, particular analysis. Can you talk just a little bit about what the optimal study would look like? The optimal study would be a study of a large enough number of people to see a difference over a period of time, and it would have to be years, uh, between people who were light drinkers and people who were abstainers from alcohol. The way that it would have to be done 
would be that people would be selected for the study as being willing to be randomized, strictly by chance, into a light-drinking group and an abstinence group, and they would have to adhere to whatever they were randomized to for enough years to complete the analysis. This would be obviously very difficult to do. Um, but the ideal study for mortality would have to involve thousands and thousands of people followed long enough to see a difference between these groups. Okay, so for now, you're quite comfortable maintaining the assertion that based on the available data, it looks like light to moderate alcohol consumption does confer some kind of benefit in terms of cardiovascular health. I think the evidence is quite compelling. There's no obvious indirect explanation, and attempts to find one have not been fruitful. The finding is consistent in men and women and various ethnic groups in different parts of the world, and any indirect explanation would have to apply to all of those groups. So I think the simplest explanation that alcohol, light to moderate drinking, is really protective against coronary heart disease is the likely correct one. Dr. Klatsky, thanks very much. Nice talking to you. You can find Arthur Klatsky's February 2003 Scientific American article, Drink to Your Health, in our digital archive, www.siamdigital.com. Interested in the inner workings of the human brain? Scientific American Mind magazine brings you breakthroughs in psychology, neuroscience, and more. For a free preview, visit www.siammind.com. Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. And also remember that Science News is updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American Magazine, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.